welcome to Integrated Community Paramedicine Podcast. I'm Jonah Thompson, and I'm with Brian Broom today. And Brian is somebody that I've known for uh, going on 15, 16 years at this point. Oh, God. <laughs> but things have definitely uh, switched up in the past, uh, as you were saying, seven years now, seven years sober. So, Yeah, yeah. Um, I think anything, again, before seven years ago, I was a completely different person in a completely different situation. I had probably, uh, you know, a drug and alcohol habit that would have killed me had I not found and, and sought sobriety. So yeah, it's been seven years now. So um, I formally apologize for anything that I did to you, like, you know, more than seven years ago. <laughs> Fair. Um, <laughs> but that said, like over the past seven years, just when things started to turn in the direction that they're going for you now, the conversations you started having, the conversations you started either nudging other people to have or forcing them to have really started to stand out. And you know, you've become a pretty amazing author and writer over the past bunch of years. And just your social media engagement with people has been something that I personally, you know, I, I feel like I benefit from it. I, I know I've told you this before. It, it challenges me. There are definitely days where the stuff you're writing uh, I read it and I get pissed off and then I have to stop and pause and think about, okay, well, why, why do I have this reaction to what I just read? Um, and you know, it's forced me to sit, take a step back and, and do some introspection and figure it out. And I've realized though, that a lot of the conversations that you're prompting people to have are the ones that I feel like everybody needs to be having. You know, these are the kind of things that we need to be talking about. And we're going to play out this joke one more time, but I think every time you and I sit down to have a conversation, you say, but I don't know anything about medicine. <laughs> I'm not going to say it this time. I'm not going to say it, even though I don't know anything about medicine. And you keep saying that, and I'm going to keep disagreeing with you. I said, I think you know the, some of the most important things about medicine that many of the people practicing simply do not. And that's how to listen to people. You know, and it's something that I think is missing from the practice of medicine, not only at the primary care and community you know, level, but, but everywhere, you know, and, and we've, we've talked about a bunch of different stories. Yeah. I think that when I started writing, I started writing in rehab. I went to, things got really bad for me. Uh, I went to rehab and there's not a whole lot to do in rehab. They make you go to bed at like nine o'clock or something. And my roommate snored a lot. Uh, and so I was just up and I started writing and I found out through writing that a lot of my troubles, I think, with drugs and alcohol had to do with race and sexuality and like gender identity. The, these things that I kind of wanted to hide from. I couldn't believe how much I was actually writing about that, like in rehab when I was there to get sober. But it just sort of kept coming up for me. Um, and a lot of my ideas or a lot of my issues around race had to do with the way that, you know, a racist society perceives me that didn't want to hear me. Uh, as a gay man, I, a lot of my issues had to do with how a homophobic society perceives me and didn't want to hear me. A lot, uh, a lot of it had to do with how those two things work together. And I wasn't this thing that, that people kept telling me that I was and I didn't know how to navigate that. So what I did was I just got high all the time. And there were even racists, racists in my rehab. Like, so those are the areas in which I focus on when I write. Some of the things I write, a lot of people don't want to hear, but I want to give people the opportunity to consider that not everything 
that you think about another person or anything, oftentimes, is actual reality. You're moving within your own reality. You're perceiving things the way that you perceive them without trying to inhabit the mind of another person. It's impossible to do, but I think we kind of have to try to do that. To, like, what it, where is this person coming from? What must uh, him or her or their life been like to bring them to the place that they are? So it's all about just sort of listening and, and trying to understand where another person is coming from. And that was a lot of my problem with drugs and alcohol, if that makes any sense. No, I think it really does. And that's such a key message today is that so many problems we're having, not just in healthcare, not just in medicine, but really in society in general, is that we have lost the ability to have conversations or maybe we never had it. Maybe that's an appeal to some, you know, leave it to beaver fantasy past that never really existed. And what we had was the ability to just simply silence people who didn't want to have the conversations that we did. Um, e- either way, and, and that may be, very well be the case. So before we go too far down that, because uh, that's actually the stuff I really want to talk about, what are you up to these days? Like, where are you at? And kind of where did you take your recovery and your um, going through that whole rehab process and landed? Well, now I am a, an instructor at the University of Pittsburgh in the English department. I teach journalism and nonfiction. I also teach English composition. I, as we said, I've been sober for seven years. In that, in that seven years, like one of the most, I think the most impactful thing has been that the things that my society was teaching me about me, about who I was, about who I was supposed to be, I began to just eschew, like, I'm not this person. I'm not, I, I am, I'm myself. And so once I started like throwing off the shackles of what society kept telling me that I was supposed to be, or them sort of putting their perceptions of myself onto myself, I started to sort of blossom. And I really found out that I, I love writing. I love teaching. And I, you know, I, I practice a sobriety ritual like every day. It's a good path for me. And I try to force people to listen to me <laughs> through my writing. Like you said, like some of the things that I write do make people angry. I get a lot of hate mail. I, because people, when it starts to rub up against their firmly held beliefs that we all have, people get really uh, upset. And so that's where I am now. I just, I continue on a journey of sobriety. Like I look back at the person that I was seven years ago and I don't even recognize him. Like I don't, I have no idea who that person was. I have no idea why I acted the way I did. I have no idea why I sought out the kind of things that I sought out because the person inside was a, was a completely different human being. And I think you'll hear that from a lot of people who, who've gotten sober. And that's probably a really important message, I guess, to remind a lot of folks, especially work in emergency medicine that, you know, these transitions happen and some of the factors, some of the conditions that drive um, emergency services utilization, calling 911, ambulances, police, emergency departments, and all of that stuff, um, those can be tied to a particular place and time and set of circumstances and people evolve and get past that. Yeah. There's a history question. I don't know that I've ever asked you this, but prior to seven years ago, what was your experience? Let's start with EMS and kind of our pre-hospital folks, you know, in terms of ambulances and emergency departments. You know, was that something, had you gotten to the point where you were ending up in the ER or people were calling 911 to take care of you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and I hated it every time. 
because I was a, a drunk and a junkie and I was treated as such. The person that, I'm, that I am sitting here is not the person that I was seven years ago. I'm, I'm sitting here using my best elocution and trying to organize my thoughts in my head and, and trying to you know, come off a certain way. But back then, I, you know, I was high, I was, I was confused. I was combative in a lot of ways, but you know, not, and I, and I understand like, you know, how an emergency response team would have to deal with somebody like I was. But there was a person underneath that was really trying to get help. I would call 911 myself when I thought I was overdosing, or I would call 911 myself, 911 myself when I thought that I, when I, when I had, you know, suicidal ideation. I, and sometimes friends of mine would, would call for me. I would be taken to Western Psych, uh, which that there's been more than a few occasions that I was there, and like I felt like I was being treated like I failed, like there was a fundamental problem with me that somebody else had to come pick up the pieces. That's what I felt like, you know, a problem. And so now I've been treated better by medical personnel than I've ever been treated. But I always remember police and EMS like going, oh, Jesus, another, you know, fucking junkie, another drunk, another, you know, I mean, I guess they were tired of seeing that. Addicts can be tiring. Addicts can be, uh, can wear on your nerves. Uh, You know, even when I was an addict, I was on my, I got on my own nerves. But I do remember being treated in a way that made me feel less than a lot of times, more like a product than a person. And unfortunately, I think everyone in this field is aware that those interactions exist, that they occur, and that they occur probably a lot more than any of us want to acknowledge. So let's flip that around and tell me when you had either the first or the most memorable interaction with some healthcare folks that actually felt like they heard what you were saying. When I went to rehab, I went to a rehab in Washington County called Greenbrier. And when I went there, you know, the, the, even the intake person at the, at the front desk spoke to me like a person. And as I went inside, you know, there was, there were doctors, I had to detox and that, and I just remember them asking me like just questions that nobody had ever asked me before. Why do you think you use? You know, I had no answer for that, but it made me think, you know, I don't know. The slick talk you try to do when you go to rehab, they already know that. So they do use a bit of prior knowledge when they're, when they, when they talk to me, like every person who goes into rehab says the same thing. I don't need to be here. I just have a little problem things just got out of hand, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they've heard all that before, but they, they have responses to that that are, that are human. If it's just gotten out of hand, why do you think you're here? You know, what is the reason that you think you're here? Like, just asking not so much, what did you do to get here? There's a subtle difference between what did you do to get here and why do you think you're here? And when I was being, you know, when I would call 911 before, I would feel like the questions they asked, it's like, what did you, what did you fucking do? Like, how did you mess yourself up? What did you, what did you do? And, you know, when I got to rehab, they, they asked me, why do you think you're here? I think the, a, a lot of it too, was that a lot of my counselors and uh, medical pro- professionals at Greenbrier were in fact, former addicts. They knew all the excuses. They knew the human side of it, because I think... When I called 911 before, 
I was at the end of a cycle. I had hurt myself or, but a lot of stuff went on before that, before I got to that point. And that's the thing to consider, you know, what happened before this that got you to this, you know, really ugly place. So that's the first time I felt like I was really being listened to. Uh, and that I think, you know, in all honesty, was probably the stepping stone to my recovery. Somebody actually was, was hearing me. Uh, I was talking about the, you know, the pressures of, uh, you know, being black and a gay man and, and, uh, and somebody was hearing me. And that's, I think that's huge. Yeah. You know, the thing that we, we focus on, at least with our community paramedicine program, and honestly, a lot of programs around the country is you mentioned the, you know, the, what happened before, how did we get here um, point. And we talk a lot about, you know, if people's life is a wave graph, you know, and it's got peaks and troughs and every one of those peaks is that crisis. It's that emergency. It's that exacerbation. It's that overdose. It's that, you know, whatever the bad thing is that prompts someone um, to pick up a phone and call 911 to, to, you know, come beg for help or engage that safety net. But people don't live at the peaks. They live in those, those troughs and valleys between those peaks. Absolutely. And, you know, for community paramedics, we talk a lot about taking their years of experience as an emergency responder where they show up at the peak and encouraging them to take all of the stories they've heard because the story they hear about why they're there starts in the valley. You know, there's that transition point where the, the line deflects upward, where things start spiraling out of control, where, where something happens that led us to the, the crisis we're in now. And it's encouraging these experienced paramedics to hear that part of the story. And, and you, you described it as, you know, listening without judging. Um, but the first time I think I asked you to come out and talk to our staff was really around that, was talking to people about how to hear what somebody else is saying and really hear it. You know, it's that joke from, I don't remember what bad movie it was in the mid nineties. The, you know, you can listen to Jimmy, but you can't really hear him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but that's just it. You know, we're used to hearing the story and checking the boxes, but we're not used to really listening to people and understanding what they're trying to say or what they're trying to share. Yeah. And for our, our community paramedics, that's been such a key point is, well, we need to understand what prompted this emergency, what caused that uptick and how can we help people avoid that in the future? Well, interesting story. Like when I was a young, a younger man, um, I was going through a really tough time and with being gay. Like I didn't want to be gay. I thought I was cursed. Like there was nobody around me to talk. And I, this is, you know, I started drinking a lot and I was having suicidal ideation. And I actually, in fact, went... I drank bleach, which was the only thing I could think to do. And then I called an emergency hotline because it was burning. You know, I think I had actually taken a bunch of pills too. Like it was just crazy when um, I was just miserable and depressed. And I called uh, a suicide hotline and, and I told them what I had done. And they dispatched not an emergency medical team, but a police officer, I believe. I can't remember. Maybe it was an emergency medical. I can't remember. But he put me in his vehicle to take me to the hospital. And he said, um, you know, I was just, I'm sitting there just dying because I, I'm gay and this is the end of my life. 
and he kept asking me and I remember he was a black man so I felt kind of like I could talk to him and he said why would you do something like this he kept asking me over and over again why would you do something like this and I said I and it was because some some guy didn't like me or something or some guy found out I was gay and told me to fuck off or something and um I said, I, I, I'm in love. And he was like, man, women, you, you don't want to do this for no woman. Like he kept going on and on about like, you know, women are, are, women aren't worth it. Women are, and he kept saying women, 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 women over again. Um, and, and I finally just yelled at him, it, what, it's not a woman. It's not a woman. Yeah, dude, like it's not a woman. And he just, the whole, the rest of the car ride was just silent because he didn't know what to say. And he had, in fact, made things worse because he made this huge assumption. And in trying to help me, he actually made things worse because he wasn't sort of listening between the lines. And that definitely didn't make you feel like you were going to be able to get what you needed out of that conversation. No, I wasn't going to be able to get what I needed out of that conversation. I, he, I, don't, you know, I don't hate the guy or anything because he was trying to help, but he did, in fact because of his, because he didn't maybe think it through, I don't know, maybe I didn't look gay to him or whatever, because of whatever, he just assumed that I was talking about a woman and that, and his assumption that that's what I was talking about made me feel infinitely worse. And when I got to the hospital, it was a nurse who immediately kind of like picked up on it because she had seen so many young gay people in that situation before that she just didn't, she, she didn't assume I was gay, but she didn't assume I was straight either. She asked. And how did asking feel? How did her asking feel? How did her asking feel? I just broke down. Like I, I, I told her everything. I probably told her far more than she wanted to know, but I felt, I felt a lot better. A lot better. And then they gave me that charcoal shit that you have to drink when you do that kind of thing. And then I felt worse again. But that know, happens. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I just remember that as being like one of those situations where somebody listened to me and that just gave me enough. It gave me enough to just sort of see another day. Yeah, it's something that comes out a lot. And I know, you know, the, the evils of social media and just never read the comments, but you read the comments. And that's a message that we've heard over and over again. It's just, just ask. And whether it's pronouns or really anything, just ask and listen to what people have to say and, and be as open to their response from their perspective as you can. You know, that, that's such an important message, but it keeps, seems to get passed over, over and over again. You know, and well, when you... The reason it's not popular is because when you ask people to do that and they don't want to do it, 99.999% of the time, it's because what you're asking them to do bumps up against their worldview. There are certain ways in which people view the world that, and that makes the world make sense to them. When you start to mess with that, that's when people become rigid. If somebody believes a certain thing about whomever, black people, gay people, trans people, whatever, and you start to nudge up against that, you start to sort of fuck with their security in the world, that's when people get upset. That's when they don't want to talk to you anymore. And that's when they shut you down and go back to their echo chamber. I've been off social media now for uh, a few weeks because it's just become a madhouse. And I've been listening to 
opposing views of to my own view from from sensible people like i'm not i'm not rush limbaughing it but just to get out of my own echo chamber and i find that you know shit some of the things joe rogan says make sense and i think we've all unfortunately become a little too accustomed to this highly polarized world where everything has to be all the way you know one direction or the other and most of us fall somewhere in between those two points on all sorts of different issues and there's a, there's a yeah. spectrum there but you know that's i think that's a a key point especially for clinicians is just if you accept that you're coming at things from your own viewpoint your own perspective and that when you ask a question the answer is not coming from your perspective it's coming from your patient or whoever you're talking to's perspective and if you can just acknowledge that right up front that the answer is not going to be your answer. It's going to be their answer. Right. You know, it, it gives you a huge leg up in the, in the direction that at least starts this process off. Right. And then you kind of have to follow that up, I guess, which is hard for me to do. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Like what we're talking about isn't like, you know, you snap your fingers and it happens, but then you have to like not judge their answer. You have to, even if you do, like you kind of have to dismiss it. I teach a lot of times my students will say some, some stuff that I'm just like, I can't even believe you believe that. Like, but you know, and this is so, totally different than being, you know, having somebody's life in your hands, but I have to swallow that, that personal belief that I have and ask more questions, ask more questions. Like, why do you think that? Or why where do you think that your opinion comes from? You know, you have to kind of like forget the self for a minute. And that's just really not easy at all to do. No, not at all. And we, so we train our, our CPs in motivational interviewing, which is kind of this like interventional therapeutic way of really having conversations that's intended to be less about us and put the focus on the, the people we're talking to. And there's an acronym for kind of how to approach that in its most basic sense. It's ORs, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and then, you know, these summary statements or summary reflections. And the idea is not to ask questions. I shouldn't be asking you a question. What I should be doing is really listening to what you're saying actively and then using things, um, open-ended questions when necessary, just to kind of uh, prompt things or maybe nudge it in a direction that we want to go. Um, but using those affirmations and those reflections, essentially saying and indicating to somebody, yes, I am listening to you. I actually heard what you just said. You know, so repeating kind of what people are saying back to them in a way that acknowledges that I, I think I've heard you or using that to confirm that you're understanding. You know, and just saying, okay, so what I'm hearing you say is right. And, and just trying to nudge the conversation along. So people feel like they're in a space or in, an, in a place where they can, they can talk, they can get out what's important. Yeah. You know, and then just trying to guide it down those right pathways. But it sounds like in, in kind of all of those experiences, both from, you know, when you went to rehab, um, now was that the first time you went to rehab or had you been through kind of that inpatient process a couple of times? I had been, I went to inpatient one time before it did not work. It did not work again because I felt it was easy to kind of like tell the people there at my first rehab what they wanted to hear. Oh yeah, I totally have a problem. I'm going to like, this is it for me. I mean, 
nobody, again, not to be repetitive, but nobody was listening. They, they were listening long enough to hear what they wanted to hear, and then they stopped. So I had been through one program before and got out and immediately went and got fucked up. And then, but I tried to do an outpatient thing one time and didn't, that didn't really work. And just the last time, like seven years ago was, was when for some reason, like it just, it worked up until today, you know, tomorrow is a different thing. Like, you know, it's a day by day thing, obviously. Yeah. I had the first time I went, I, I was just like, Oh, I can just pretty much talk my way out of this. Um, because I would listen to what they were saying and then I would just respond with what I knew that they wanted to hear. A lot of people who go to rehab do that just, just to get out, particularly if it's like a mandated thing. They're listening, but, but the person that's supposed to be like, you know, taking care of them or, or showing them the way is not listening. And I've been in like, you know, I've been in lots of situations with medical uh, issues. You can't sort of live the life that I led without having um, medical issues come up. Sure. So outside of rehab, let's talk about just the experience of being a patient and either, you know, feeling like you're being heard and you're engaging well with, with whoever that clinician is, whether it's a doc or somebody else, um, or not being heard. Just in my various mayhem around the piece. Um, I, I think that when I would fall or and somebody had to come to take care of me, a medical professional, uh, or I would be in emergency rooms, endless emergency rooms, just for shit that I had gotten myself into. Or how about a PCP or like a family doctor or, or that kind of thing, the more routine care? Oh, God. Like that was, that was few and far between. I did have... So why? That, that's probably the first question, is why were those type of um, experiences or encounters few and far between? Well, because I felt like a cog in a machine, like going there. I mean, oddly enough, a lot of, time, a lot of the time that I was in active addiction, I had a job that provided me with medical insurance. Um, so I could have gone to doctors, but I never really developed any sort of relationship with any of my... Uh, PCPs in the past. Um, the last relationship that I remember having with a doctor was when I was a kid, a little kid, and my mother and father's doctor was also my doctor. Like the doctor who delivered me was my doctor. And I never forget his name was, it was a practice, doctors Polis and McGuire. And that I would see them, I mean, I would go to see them for everything. My mother and my father would go to see them for everything. Although my father wasn't really a big on doctors, but we had a family doctor. After I left that situation, like I, I never stuck, stuck with a doctor very long. One was just like the next. I would go in for, if something, I wouldn't go in unless something was really, really wrong. And when things were really, really wrong, like I would just end up probably going to an emergency room. I didn't feel comfortable telling my doctors because they literally, I wouldn't see them. Like I would see, like there'd be a doctor, I would have the doctor's name that was on the door. Like I would never see that person. And if I did see that person, I would see them for like six minutes. But the, the, I don't know what the job is, but there's a, doctors have a person that does all the stuff for them. What's that called? Um, well, there's usually a lot of folks in the practice. There's going to be the nursing staff. There might be some medical assistants. 
Um, there's the front office folks. I think and, it was and, like the medical assistant, like the person, like I would go in, somebody would take my blood pressure, you know, draw my blood, ask me a few questions. And then that would be in my, to my, to my thinking, like the medical visit. And then the doctor would breeze in and be like, Hey, how you doing? And I'd be like, well, okay. And then he would leave. So I think I saw a lot of medical assistants. Quite possibly. You know, it's the way healthcare is going has kind of changed a bunch. And maybe that leads us into another question is, you know, obviously we're in the the land of COVID paradise right now and it's Mm. forcing a lot of changes, but some of these changes were kind of coming anyway. And and the one big area I'm thinking about is uh, really like technology and how from the healthcare industry's perspective, uh, telemedicine and telehealth and, and the use of all this technology to engage patients is being seen by quite a few folks as kind of the next great leap forward. But what, is, what does that feel like to you looking at it from your experience in your history? Telemedicine? Yeah. Um, well, I haven't tried it yet. Actually, I will be doing it next week. I have a televisit with my doctor, which will probably be the longest time I've ever spoken to this person. Like, I don't even know if it's going to actually be him. It might actually be the medical assistant again. I don't know what it entails. Like, I don't know what, you know, how to, what, I don't know. I mean, basically, I don't know. If it results in me being able to be honest about how I'm feeling and what's, what, what, are my, what my current issues are, then I think it's a leap forward. Other than feeling rushed. That's the main thing right? when I would go to the doctor, like I just felt rushed. Like I have, I can't, I don't have the time to talk about the stuff that that's going on with me really, I, you know, because this, this person is obviously very busy. You know, there's something about politeness that kicks in. I think sometimes uh, when you go to the doctor where you're like, Oh my God, I feel like such a, such a burden on this person. Uh, I don't want to disturb this doctor. Right. I don't want to disturb this doctor. So I'll just let, he clearly or she is clearly very busy. And so this little mole on my elbow is probably not a big deal. I've had that a lot. Even when I was trying to get sober, even when I had hit like this sort of, um, you know, the penultimate rock bottom, I was trying to talk to my doctor about how I felt like I was, I didn't feel well. I didn't feel well in my head. And I remember going to a visit and being like, oh God, they don't want to hear that. Like they're just here to, they're just making sure that things are ticking and that I'm still working. So I didn't mention what was a pretty debilitating depression. I just let it go. And, and we then talk- the emergency room took care of it later. Right. And we talk a lot about say like the doorknob effect in primary care where, you know, what people are coming into the office and, you know, when they're first asked, they say, hey, this is, this is why I'm here. And everybody knows that as soon as that doc is about to step out of the room and they put their hand on the doorknob to open it and walk out, the patient goes, oh, but there's one other thing. And all too often, that's really why people are there. And it's really what they're worried about. And, you know, obviously, you know, the healthcare industry has shifted so much that there may not be time to engage in that what is probably the more important question. Yeah. And that's sad. Like, because I, you know, probably a lot of really serious health issues are just sort of swept under the rug that way. But I do know people who I have an an uncle who does not, you know, there's this, there's this thing I think where in American society where we revere doctors, where they are seen as like this, you know, what does your mom tell you to do when you're a kid? Become a doctor. 
uh, where they're held in this sort of high esteem. But I have an uncle who does not regard doctors in that way, like at all. And so he will keep a doctor, he will hold a doctor captive until he has gotten every single issue on his mind, like out in the open. He's not a hypochondriac or anything. He's just, his, his mindset is like, yeah, you're a doctor, but you're, this is your job. You know, you're supposed to be helping me with my, my medical issues. And I think many of us, unless we're going there for a specific reason, we just let things go. So if I was to ask you, what do you think the single most important change we could make in any given interaction with the healthcare system from, from the patient's perspective, especially as somebody who has struggled with being heard, um, especially as somebody who is, you know, had all the experiences you had around not being kind of the uh, lily white, cis, hetero, what have you. When you show up, whether it's at a doctor's office, the emergency department, or the paramedics showed up at wherever you happen to be, what's the single most important thing people could do to improve that whole interaction? Well, I mean, it's going to sound really hokey, but in my experience, like I know that nothing would have changed for me if I hadn't at one point during my journey, uh, my medical journey as an addict, been treated like a person. Um, like nothing would have changed for me. I mentioned before that I, I tried rehab and they, and they sort of, it was like this McDonald's rehab, like, hey, what are you, a junkie? Here you go, here's some literature next. Until I got to Greenbrier and that the, the front desk woman was like, why do you think you're here? And I just, I think I gave some sort of perfunctory answer like, I don't know. But I remember that question because I didn't answer it but it made me think like, why am I here? Again, it sounds really hokey and really sort of basic, but like, and I, I imagine that in the medical industry, people, you see a lot of people and people can become interchangeable. You just start, you plug in a diagnosis or you plug in a personality trait or what have you, but, and I don't know how hard it is. I can't speak to it, but I can say that as far as my experience goes as a patient, as somebody who has dealt with a lot of, a lot of medical professionals, like nothing would have changed for me until I was listened to, like really listened to. And somebody was actually responding to me as opposed to responding to their job. That's, that's it right there. You know, I think for our community paramedics in a lot of agencies, a lot of programs, the reason why these programs exist is because there's a subset of people in the community who are struggling with whatever they're struggling with. And it results in them calling 911, going to the emergency department and ending up in the hospital uh, at this rate that's it's totally disproportionate with their you know, apparent history. If you were to just look at their chart, you know, why is this person needing and demanding so much you know, help? And I, and I use the air quotes around help there from our emergency services, from our, our hospitals and our acute care interventions. And we use our community paramedics to try to engage with those folks, you know, to try to figure out, well, why does this person need the paramedics to, to come out so often? Why is this person needing the emergency department so often? And if the key is just sit down and listen to somebody and take the time to hear the story, to hear the reasons why and, and help people work through that, then maybe we can make a much bigger impact on yeah. everything else. And a lot of it, I think to me, and I think, a lot of it, this sounds weird, but some of it is theater. When you have a problem, and what I mean by theater is like, it, when you call 911, 
it looks and feels like somebody is responding to you, right? The action of maybe flashing lights and people in uniforms coming to your house and looking at you and asking, you know, that feels like somebody is addressing the problem. But, and I called 911 a lot of times, and I think a lot of the times I called 911 was to just at least get that feeling that somebody was listening, that somebody had to come. But the most profound effect that somebody in the medical profession had on me was in a quiet room. There were no flashing lights. There was no uh, you know, parade of people in uniforms. It was just a quiet interaction. Why do you think you're here? What's your history? Why do you, why would you, why do you want to do this? Why do you, what does drinking do for you? What does alcohol do for you? What is, what do drugs, what does drugs do for you? Like those kinds of questions in a quiet room are what made like the most impact on my life. Not sirens. Not sirens. <laughs> like a lot of people in my neighborhood call 911 like a lot. I live in an underserved neighborhood and the amount of sirens in this neighborhood is deafening like because we do have elderly people we do have people who don't have medical insurance a lot of them and there a lot of stuff happens around here too like i mean let's not let's not sugarcoat it like you know i wonder sometimes like things were equal would there be as many sirens going off in my neighborhood no oh, and that's that's a pretty key point that we noticed from just our experience and and later from the data we were collecting that Many people, when we were able to build a connection and a relationship with them and, and really start to get them to open up and share what they were thinking, what they were feeling, and not just what they were asking for in the immediate, would tell us that you know, the reason why they call 911, the reason why they go to the emergency department is really tied to a lot of loneliness, to social isolation, or to this feeling that you know, when the, the paramedics show up, when the firefighters show up, when the police show up, they have to listen to me. Yeah. They have to come. Yeah. And there's something, there's something so transformative about re- recognizing that or feeling that somebody didn't have to come, but, but they wanted to come. They want to be there. It's a performative nature of a 911 call, of the sirens and you know, the people in the uniforms with the stethoscopes and all that stuff. It doesn't compare to the real interaction that you have with somebody who really, really sees you. And that... I imagine that would be a hard thing to keep up every day as a medical professional. Like to, I have to like literally like see everybody, you know, I imagine it would be emotionally draining. Um, so I don't know how to navigate that. That's your job. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a whole nother topic that, you know, honestly we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the compassion fatigue that develops from actually being open to and sensitive to people's real stories and their real struggles and challenges and not just the, well, we're going to deal with the immediate life threats that are in front of us and move on to the next. Right. So. right. Awesome. Well, I know we had to go at this a couple different times to finally get this recorded, but man, I really appreciate you taking some time talking to us. Oh, thank you. And I also got to say, you know, my team had really appreciated the time you came in and, and talked to them. And it's actually something that still comes up in conversation. Oh, so, wow. you know, learning how to listen and hear what people have to say is, is something I think we all struggle with. And for our community paramedics out there, I would strongly encourage you to make that a part of your education, make that a part of your training programs and, and make it a regular ongoing part, not just a one-off lecture that you get somewhere, you know, in a, in a training program, but have that conversation. Talk about how to listen. 
because that's really where we're finding the drivers and triggers in our communities. Well, thanks for hopping on, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, talk to you soon. 